This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to FigPea's podcast series, FigPea Focus 45. FigPea is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FigPea global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FigPea business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Welcome to FigPea's webinar and podcast series, FigPea Focus 45. We are delighted to confirm that among our next guests, we will be speaking with James Pooley to chat about trade secrets, Andrew Hirschfeld, the Commissioner of Patents in the United States, and our own Roberto Pistolesi. Stay tuned for more on our FICPI Focus 45 schedule via the FICPI website events page, via LinkedIn, and the regular FICPI newsletter. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel, and I'm a partner at Bereskin and Par in Montreal, Canada. Today, we will be having a conversation with the Judge Paul R. Michel retired from the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit to speak on the notion of patentable subject matter and Section 101 of the United States legislation on patents. Judge Michel. Yes, sir. Welcome to our webinar series. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So the to today's topic is Section 101. And uh, of course, most practitioners know that Section 101 is this section in the United States uh, legislation on patents that deals with what is an invention. And so how, do we, how did we get to the point where today there seems to be a significant amount of uncertainty as to what Section 101 actually means or what it stands for? Well, I think that's right. It's an unfortunate development. It happened quite suddenly, in my opinion, in 2012, when the Supreme Court issued its judgment in the case that we refer to shorthand as Mayo. That changed uh, the previous regime going back 200 years, which was fairly stable and predictable. It worked a sea change, and we've been struggling ever since with inconsistent results, lack of predictability, narrowed eligibility, and confusion and conflation between the eligibility requirement and the requirement for non-obviousness and adequate disclosure. Mayo was about what? Mayo was about a diagnostics method? Yes, it was. Uh, and uh, the particular invention there perhaps 
shouldn't have been patented, perhaps wasn't even eligible. But the problem with the case was that it changed the mode of analysis entirely from the prior law under precedents like Deere and Fluke uh, and, uh, and others uh, by uh, shifting analysis so that if any limitation of a claim involves an excluded bit of subject matter, then you presume that the claim is ineligible unless there is a so-called inventive concept never defined, and I would say not even definable, uh, which is somewhat like what we call obviousness, but somewhat different. So there's been a massive confusion uh, ever since. Right. And then so after Mayo, the courts in the United States sort of struggled a little bit with the holding of the Supreme Court. And there were a couple of other cases that instead of fixing things, probably ended up making things a bit worse. I'm afraid that's a fair statement. The Supreme Court's uh, cases, particularly Mayo and Alice, were unclear and somewhat uh, schizophrenic, uh, saying on the one hand, uh, don't uh, exclude too much, but on the other hand, exclude enough without ever being clear how you decide that or where the line should be, where the balance should be. And unfortunately, Federal Circuit has, in my opinion, allowed matters to get much worse by issuing decisions that seem to guess at what they think the Supreme Court might have had in mind. Uh, and it's become highly subjective, highly unpredictable, highly unstable, constantly changing. And in my view, the Federal Circuit decisions themselves can't be reconciled with one another. And some of them can't be reconciled with Alice or Mayo either. So the Supreme Court gave us uh, a problem and the Federal Circuit made it worse. And the trial courts and the patent office and others have struggled ever since. So in some comments that we've seen online and, and some on the record as well, people have suggested that Section 101 is currently being misused in the sense that 101 should probably be used as a coarse filter to exclude certain types of categories from inventions, but not to be this substantive test that it apparently has been uh, raised up to be currently? Well, that's right. It seems to me that the total impact of the Federal Circuit cases trying to implement the Supreme Court precedent has been to front load, you could say, all the other sections of the Patent Act, uh, the requirements for disclosure, for non-obviousness, for non-anticipation into the 101 exercise. And very often judges are making decisions on eligibility with no claim construction, no expert witnesses, uh, no live examination, uh, inadequate uh, documentation of the prior art. So it's become uh, uh, highly unpredictable, subjective, unadministrable, and the decisions at all levels are uh, inconsistent. And that's why I call it chaos. And it's not only untidy, but it's extremely harmful because it deters innovation and investment that would otherwise be occurring. I'd, I'd like to delve into that aspect a little bit. When the Mayo case was decided, was there an argument within the case, and you sort of alluded to it a little earlier, that the claims or the invention that was in fact protected by, the, by Mayo should not have been granted as an invention? Was there a public policy rationale animating that that reasoning? Well, the opinion expressed the concern that uh, if uh, eligibility was too wide, it might deter progress in science and the useful arts instead of promote it. And so uh, the court 
assumed that that was the case, that it was more in, inhibiting than promoting progress. But it had no factual basis for saying that. It was a pure assumption and a highly speculative one. I would suggest it was inaccurate, but in any event, it was entirely unsupported. So yes, there was a rationale, but not a very good one. And, and But this is really what lies at the tension between those who promote use of the patent system to foster innovation and increase innovation, and those that oppose it, is that there is a perception, and I'm not, I mean, we could probably have some economists come in and speak to us, and whether or not that's true is probably debatable. But there are some that say that progress, that patents do in fact hinder innovation because they sort of tie up some, some inventive or innovation capital into the hands of of the few. On the other hand, one of the arguments for patent protection is that the, the fact that you have obtained a patent is probably an easier conduit to share your innovation because you've crystallized it. You've nailed it down into something that's a document that can be read, understood, analyzed by, by third parties, and that's easier to, to transfer and share in terms of knowledge. Well, of course, uh, both sides of the argument have some uh, truth to them, and you uh, capsulize it very adroitly. But I want to go back to the basic. Uh, you talked earlier about invention. I suggest that the U.S. Uh, eligibility section, section 101, is really not about what's an invention. It's about whether the invention falls in one of four categories authorized by the Congress. And if it does, it should be declared eligible because the statute has no exceptions uh, in it. And the Supreme Court nevertheless created exceptions over some extensive period of time based on the idea of inventive concept or true invention, which is uh, elusive, which never worked well in the past and was entirely replaced by the non-obviousness requirement injected into the U.S. Patent Act in 1952. section, uh, the non-obviousness requirement was specifically intended to overpower the prior case law about what is and isn't an invention or what is an adequate inventive concept. But the Supreme Court has entirely ignored that section of the act. In fact, the Supreme Court said uh, that uh, the 1952 act was a mere codification and wasn't intended to change anything at all. That was completely false. It was decidedly intended, uh, deliberately intended to uh, change the law. Uh, so the Supreme Court um, uh, has clung to its past statements, even though the underlying statutory law was materially changed in 1952. So the Supreme Court off and on in the U.S., I'm sorry to say, has been a big problem uh, for the functioning of the patent system. Now, it's true that there could be harm if patents are improvidently granted, but that's the purpose of sections 102, 103, and 112, which are much more objective, much more uh, easy to administer, are based on actual evidence and documents, not the gut feel of a trial judge staring at a patent claim and saying, that looks kind of abstract to me, end of case, ineligible, dismissed. Right. And so Mayo was decided back in 2012. We're in 2022. So we've got 10 years of confusing pronouncements from the Supreme Court. And in fact, that it appears that the Supreme Court has refused to reconsider some of these issues based on applications for leave to the Supreme Court. Where does that leave today's practitioners or where does that leave today's innovative companies in terms of trying to divine to a certain extent what should or shouldn't be a patent application worth filing? 
in a state of total dysfunctional confusion that is uh, hurting the economy, hurting the advance of technology, and discouraging the needed investment because most inventions are expensive and take a lot of money and a lot of talent to work out. So it's a big problem. And you're right, the Supreme Court in the uh, 10 years since the Mayo case has turned down something like 65 applications to revisit the Mayo case and its eligibility regime, as I call it. They've turned down every single one. Uh, The Federal Circuit has struggled, as I mentioned before, to make sense of it, not successfully. Um, And the same with the Patent Office uh, and the trial judges. Uh, So we have a sort of perfect storm because the Federal Circuit is bound by the Supreme Court pronouncements. The Patent Office and the trial judges are bound by the Federal Circuit's pronouncements. Uh, Those pronouncements aren't changing because the Supreme Court refuses to revisit the issue and the Federal Circuit refuses to go in bank. And it only could, as a full bench, overrule some of its own inconsistent precedents. So there's no agent of change left on the horizon. Of course, the patent office can't be the agent of change because it's subordinate to the federal circuit. And that's why, along with former director David Kapos, I've been trying to help lead an effort of some 60 or 70 stakeholder organizations to convince the U.S. Congress to legislate a fix to restore Section 101 to its original intent as Congress envisioned it. Uh, And fortunately, there are some senators, including Senator Tillis and Senator Coons, who are quite knowledgeable and quite interested in this. So there's some hope perhaps on the horizon that sooner or later, the Congress will uh, try to fix up this problem, which the courts can't fix. They've completely trapped themselves. It's a massive failure of the judicial method. And as a former judge, I find it embarrassing. Right. And and so can you explain why the federal circuit would refuse to reconsider this issue on banc? Um, it seems to me that even some of your former colleagues um, have opined on the subject and said this is a this is a, a bit of a mess. But why aren't they taking this up? Well, it's a very good question, and I don't have a very complete answer. Uh, there, are, all of the active judges have complained about the Mayo Alice regime as being unpredictable unadministrable, unclear, et cetera. About half of them have voted to uh, reconsider these issues uh, as a full bench on banc, as we like to say here. Um, But it takes seven votes out of the 12 active judges to rehear an appeal on banc, and they never seem to be able to uh, muster the seventh or eighth vote. So they don't go in bonk. Maybe part of the reason is that they're swamped with decisions from the Patent Trial and Appeal Board that have greatly enlarged their caseload. It's much, much heavier than than when I was there from 1988 to 2010. But that's not a very good excuse. Uh, I think part of it may also be that some judges like the freedom to reshape the law in their own personal opinion, which they have as a panel member on a three-judge panel, if they can only get one other judge on the panel to agree with them. And they don't want to give up that power by going in bank and having the full court set limits on what they otherwise could do. So that's my theory. It's not based on anything but a gut uh, speculation. But a well-informed gut speculation, let us admit that. (laughs) Well, the inner workings of the court are are a very interesting subject for uh, uh, another day. But there has always been 
an excess reticence to uh, rehear cases on bonk. It adds hugely to the friction between the judges and to the workload. But again, that's not a very good excuse, in my opinion. That's their job. That's what they have to do if it's onerous, too bad. So the, the way the U.S. system is organized is you've got separation of power. You've got the executive on one side. You've got the courts on, on another side, the Supreme Court being the final arbiter of judicial interpretation. And then you have Congress, which is the legislative branch, which nominally would be able to legislate part of this uh, away or, or clarify it. it. It seems, and you've made some reference to some senators who are certainly open to, to discussing the issue and to bring some, some change. Um, aren't other organizations such as um, AIPLA or IPO or NYIPLA pushing for some changes on the Section 101 statute? All of them are. They make up the 60 to 70 stakeholders that I referred to before, led by uh, David Kapos and, and myself. Uh, and we've been working with the senators closely. We all testified, 45 witnesses in total in June of 2019. 40 of the 45 witnesses of the diverse uh, set of witnesses uh, called for reform. And even the five who opposed reform admitted the law was a mess. They just didn't want reform because they saw certain advantages to their clients uh, to have the status quo remain. And then the effort got stalled. So now we're two and a half years later and there is no bill introduced. But I'm hopeful there will be a bill introduced because all of the responsible organizations that are broad based, like the ones you mentioned, ABA, AIPLA, IPO, LES, uh, Autumn and others uh, agree the law needs to be clarified and changed. And that only Congress can do it because the courts have, as I said before, uh, trapped themselves with their own ill-considered precedents. You've talked about some of the organizations and people who are in favor of some clarity um, and some simplification of the rules, if we can use that term. Who are the opponents? Who's fighting this and, and perhaps causing this to be stalled or taking longer than it could or should? Well, there's a very large, diverse group of powerful forces that calls itself the concerned group, as distinct from the pro-reform group that I'm part of. Uh, and it seems to be organized around the leadership of the Silicon Valley giant companies, the so-called FANG companies of, you know, Apple and Intel and Google and Facebook and so on. But they have many allies in some big uh, retail chains and some uh, mega banks in New York and also some ideological groups uh, like uh, health activists. Uh, so it's a very diverse group and it has a certain amount of uh, credibility uh, and lots of talented people and it has vast resources. The High Tech Inventors Alliance, which is the vehicle for the FANG companies to uh, lobby the Congress on this issue and related issues, uh, has endless amount of money. And so they hire dozens of law firms and lobby firms and public relations firms, and they inundate Capitol Hill with their narrative. And in my view, their narrative is not very accurate, certainly not complete. And um, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, complete or not. They pound the drum for their narrative and uh, they spend a lot of money uh, and they uh, get scholars to write articles that seem to support them. They fund uh, seemingly independent think tank organizations that also support them. Uh, so it's a very powerful array of forces and it succeeded in shutting down the momentum 
that was built up by the senators I mentioned and their colleagues that had other supporters, entirely bipartisan. And so what looked like reform uh, being legislated in the summer of 2019 by August of 2019 was at a full stop. So we've been trying ever since to revive it because it's the only solution to the problem. And the problem, I, I think, uh, uh, demonstrably uh, harming the level of investment uh, in innovation, particularly in the 10 or so advanced technologies that China is trying so hard to dominate. So we're, we're doing something that is uh, harmful to our national security as well as our uh, global technological uh, leadership and our economy and job creation and, and all the rest. Uh, and it's a uh, it's very uh, bad self-inflicted wound. Uh, in tennis, you'd call it an unforced error, I guess. And it needs to change. That's the reason I retired from the court. I loved being a member of the federal circuit. I served for 22 years. I thought I would never want to leave. But it became clear that the patent system and other IP regimes too, but principally the patent system, were under such sustained assault to weaken and further weaken and further weaken that I could hopefully do more good on the outside, speaking freely as an advocate than remaining on the court as a judge subject to the perfectly appropriate rules against getting involved in major public policy debates and against uh, lobbying the legislature and so forth. So now I spend most of my time on education uh, of media people, uh, Congress uh, people, uh, their staff, uh, think tank people and, and others. Uh, and uh, I hope that with the need being so great that uh, eventually we get some traction and, and move forward. It always takes time. I spent uh, nine years as a staffer in the U.S. Senate in a prior portion of my career. And uh, usually uh, they said when I got there that a new bill uh, from ideation to passage on average takes five years. Uh, right. And it's rare that they're much faster than that. So we're still early in the five-year cycle. So I haven't given up hope yet. <laughs> You you mentioned earlier that that there is a demonstrate demonstrable impact on innovation in the United States uh, due to this this incoherence in the pronouncements of the Supreme Court and some of the confusion that lies around the interpretation of Section 101. What what kind of basis do you have for for making that statement? Well, the uh, uh, pro-reform group is about to file a paper with the senators in response to an October paper filed by the concern group, the opponents of any change in eligibility law. Uh, and it, uh, it goes on for 30 pages and 50 footnotes, quoting an endless number of uh, objective studies by economists, by patent lawyers, by investors and inventors and many other uh, such people. So uh, I, I, we don't have time for me to recite no, no. Uh, all of this, uh, but it's a little bit uh, of a masking problem because in general, investment in R&D is higher in America now than it was uh, at the time of uh, Mayo or Alice or even since. But the studies show that it would have been much higher still if it weren't for the mess of eligibility law. There's one study, for example, by an economist that shows that the level of investment in technology uh, under the Alice Mayo regime is $9 billion per year, less than it would be if we didn't have Mayo and Alice. That's, uh, that's a little bit more than just pocket change. <laughs> it is. Uh, and again, the competition with 
global rivals. I mentioned China earlier, but obviously our friends in Europe and other uh, parts of the globe have advanced their own technological prowess, which is wonderful. Uh, so from the U.S. Uh, standpoint, uh, we have a lot of rivals. There's a lot of competition. It's not only China, but uh, with respect to China, it's not only an economic contest, it's a national security uh, contest as well. So uh, the United States cannot afford to dawdle on this. Uh, the stakes are way, way too high. We recently had a report by our National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence which criticized the mess of eligibility law as holding back the U.S. in trying to advance in various aspects of artificial intelligence, which is one of the primary areas of Chinese concentration in which they've made fabulous strides. And in many aspects, I'm told by the experts, they've already surpassed the United States and then others are catching up fast. So this is, this is not a speculation uh, that this could be a problem. This is already a problem and it's a huge problem of the most basic sort. Is there an inconsistency, the opponents, so that these concerned citizens, in that the drivers of this group, the so-called FANG, are in fact extremely heavy users of the patent system. Does that not seem like an, an incoherent position for them to take on not changing the, the status quo and, and leaving the uncertainty there? Well, they're not reliant on patents now in the way that small or middle-sized or startup companies or university spinoffs always are. They were dependent on patents at their founding. Uh, the Google search algorithm was uh, patented by two Stanford graduate students who've become fabulously famous multi-billionaires, but they're not dependent on it anymore. And so they are happy to see the patent system weakened, weakened, weakened. Uh, so that's what they have been striving to do for the last uh, uh, 10 or so years. And they've had a signal success uh, in doing that. The creation of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board to review issued patents under terms uh, and conditions very harmful to the patent owner is one example of the success of their efforts. They got Congress to help them out uh, so that a patent that's upheld in court can now later be struck down by the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. And it happens frequently. Mm -hmm. So that's a crazy chaotic regime in and of itself. So that's one example of the harm they've caused. And they've also caused uh, harm by blocking efforts to reform 101, blocking efforts to uh, correct the design defects that Congress inadvertently uh, put into the uh, Patent Trial and Appeal Board provisions in the American Vents Act uh, passed in 2011. Experiences shown that it's not an alternative to expensive district court litigation. That was the exact goal quoted in the reports. It's become a prelude to expensive district court litigation. So instead of making it faster and cheaper, it's made it slower and more expensive and more adverse to the patent owner, uh, as I uh, indicated before. So uh, we have chaos on chaos in every direction in the United States because we've so politicized patent law that it's become an irrational lobby slugfest instead of an intellectual exercise designed to get good policy. In 1952, uh, the revised Patent Act was written by a handful of experts, including my late colleague, Judge Giles Rich, uh, and the Congress uh, passed it promptly with almost no change at all and no controversy. So it was an expert uh, contribution. Now we're at the opposite extreme where the experts don't count, 
the people who really know don't count. It's all just campaign contributions and PR spin and billboards on buses and in airports talking about patent trolls and other such uh, mythic figures. So we've descended into political chaos from public patent policy. I'm, I'm going to remember the, the slugfest image of, of this as this is going to be it's engraved in my mind. You've, you've talked a lot about how this situation in the United States is harming U.S. innovative companies in your in your efforts, in your work. Um, has has you seen have you seen sorry foreign applicants being affected by this situation who perhaps might be able to get patents elsewhere? but find themselves unable to obtain patent protection in the United States. Yes, that's one of the great ironies here. There was a study done by Professor Adam Mosshoff and a colleague that examined a couple thousand patents, as I recall, uh, that had been declared ineligible in the United States, but were patented in Europe or leading Asian jurisdictions. So there is a huge disparity uh, between the results in the U.S. versus the results in Europe or Asia, including China. Uh, China has broader eligibility and far more certain eligibility than we do in the United States. Its trials are far faster and far cheaper uh, than in the United States. They have specialized uh, tribunals the, con, uh, consisting of patent experts, which we do not have at the trial level in the United States. So in many ways, I envy what the Chinese have done. And their uh, patent laws, the actual laws, have been up dated almost every year. Uh, the, the U.S. patent law hasn't been touched uh, since 2011 and not significantly since 1952. So uh, the disparity between results and activities on the ground in the U.S. versus uh, European nations, Asian nations like Japan, Korea, uh, Taiwan, and particularly China, it, it's startling, it's shocking, and it's not healthy to have such disparate results uh, in one part of the world versus another part of the world. The more harmonized and unified we can be, the better for everybody because so much of business today and economics, investment flows across borders, uh, R&D goes across borders, products go across borders. To a great extent, it is a global economy. And instead of having more harmonization, now we have less. Instead of having more certainty and predictability, now we have less. And it's all because of this Alice Mayo regime. In your opinion, are there any international efforts that could aid in this issue? For example, and you just talked about harmonization, if there were a push at the international level to harmonize this facet of patent protection, would that be helpful in your efforts? Certainly. Uh, and already there uh, has been support uh, by many non-U.S. Uh, entities for the kind of reform uh, that uh, the Capos Group has been calling for Congress to legislate. And in fact, uh, the FICPI organization itself has been involved and helpful and supportive uh, in this effort, representing, as you pointed out at the outset, uh, diverse practitioners from practically every country uh, around the globe who are in private uh, practice uh, in IP law. Uh, so yes, there's lots of international support. And yes, it's uh, helpful. But uh, in uh, the U.S. Uh, Capitol Hill slugfest, it's all about money and PR, uh, not about international support, unfortunately. In a nutshell, the kinds of changes that you're, that you're advocating for reform of 101 would be, would be what? And legislation. What? Le legislation. The, the patent law is not common law. Patent but, law is a statutory regime. Section 101 is part of a statute. It has no exceptions. The courts created some anyway. 
It has a provision called non-obviousness intended to do away with the invention test of old Supreme Court cases. They go back to it anyway. So the answer is legislation. And I'm not saying everything should be eligible. Our group uh, agrees that certain things uh, should be declared uh, specifically in Section 101 to be not eligible, but it should be in the legislation. It should be defined. It should be clear and it should be reasonable. So uh, we're looking for a balanced course filter in Section 101, and that's not what we have now. Fair enough. And so one of the suggestions might be to look at the European system. And the European system has a technical requirement or technical effect that needs to be met for any kind of invention to be protected by a statute. Is that a path that might be some palatable to to legislators? Of course. Uh, and uh, the Capos group is affirmatively proposing that there be a, a technology test, a technical effect type test as a way to give a, a specific shape and form to the changes sought in Section uh, 101. And that would accommodate a lot of the concerns of people who've been hesitant about 101 reform. Uh, but because of pecuniary interests, the opponents oppose anyway. So going back to early pronouncements of Mayo and Alice, for an uninitiated practitioner, is there any guidance or any rationale that one could take away from these cases? Well, the, 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 the rationale is that the system was supposed to promote progress in science and technology, but the Supreme Court is not well equipped to assess when that's at risk. They just assumed it was at risk. The Congress has the tools to amass uh, through hearings and submissions by hundreds or thousands of experts and other knowledgeable people, uh, the factual basis that would allow one rationally and logically and accurately to determine how big is the risk of impeding, how big is the risk of impeding invention versus the risk of uh, impeding investment that you need, uh, and how to balance it out. That's a legislative function. That ought to be done by the Congress, not by the court based on assumptions and without a factual record in a two party a dispute that has filtered its way up through the hierarchy of courts in the United States and arrived uh, at the Supreme Court. So this is a fundamental question of who's in charge here, the Congress in a statutory regime or the Supreme Court as if this were a purely common law regime? The answer should be obvious. It's a statutory regime. Uh, and the Supreme Court, in my opinion, should be more circumspect in its interventions. Uh, and the Congress, on its part, needs to activate itself and adjust the laws as needed, the way China is doing, the way Europe has done, the way other jurisdictions uh, have done. That's the duty of a legislative part of a governmental structure. But the U.S. Congress, unfortunately, has become somewhat paralyzed, uh, somewhat um, full of tribal warfare and partisan bickering. It's practically dysfunctional uh, on most issues. And that's a great shame. And that has to change. One of the good things about 101 reform is that it's a bipartisan issue. Coons is a Democrat. Tillis is a Republican. Hirono is a Democrat. Cotton is a Republican and so on and so on. Highly bipartisan, highly non-ideological. But what holds it up is monetary interests of certain companies and certain uh, groups who are better off uh, with the current chaos than they would be with a rational scheme that had clarity, predictability, and balance. So they fight regimes, they fight any change, and they've been successful so far. 
Thank you for that. There is a temporal aspect to this whole situation as well. As you said, there were efforts that were nearing or hopefully neared success back in 2019. This was a few months before the pandemic hit. Pandemic hit in March 2020. And since then, governments everywhere have been naturally preoccupied by the effects of of the of COVID on, on public health, on the health systems in the various countries. Now that we're perhaps looking at a easing or, or less of a burden on our health systems and the population of COVID infections. Do you see any opportunity to get this moving again before the midterm elections? I think it's unlikely to move significantly, certainly not to fruition uh, within the, uh, the next uh, 11 months. I do think that in the longer run, it's likely there will be legislation it will be balanced. It will make a great improvement. It, it would probably would not be my dream bill, but that's fine. I'm not the Congress. The problem is that the Congress is not able to function now in the way that it did, that I saw it function in the 1980s when I was a staffer at the Senate. They've got to recover their ability to function and handle more than one or two issues at a time. In the 80s, when I watched the senators work, it was not only bipartisan, but they were juggling hundreds of issues simultaneously and moving forward on dozens and dozens of major pieces of legislation simultaneously. That's not happening anymore in the Congress. So we need to fix 101 law, but unfortunately, we also need to fix the U.S. Congress. We've talked a lot today about how this Section 101 issue is one that has landed squarely in the field of the Supreme Court and the judiciary, as well as the legislative branch. Is there any appetite at the executive branch to take this up? And how much influence does the executive have in trying to move this reform forward? Well, if the executive took a leadership position, if the administration took a leadership position based on things like the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence and other such uh, advanced technologies, that would make a sea change a difference. So far, they haven't done that, but they could do that. I hope they will do that. They probably will eventually do that because their own policy papers that they've issued highlight the very same technologies that China is trying to surpass the U.S. in as being critically important and uh, mention that um, patents are part of the solution, not the only part, but an important part of the solution. So logically, the administration will uh, move in a direction of providing some strong leadership, and that would certainly help move uh, some of the legislators. At the ground level in the patent office, they put together some very good guidelines that uh, rationalized and made more sense and clarity out of the Supreme Court case law um, in a set of guidelines issued in 2019. And unfortunately, when they got before the federal circuit, the federal circuit gave them the back of the hand. Of course, the, cir uh, the circuit court said correctly that we're not bound by what the patent office uh, writes and guidelines. Of course, they're not. They don't have to follow it. Maybe they shouldn't follow it. But I think the uh, effort was a good effort, intellectually sound, and entitled to at least some respect. Maybe it wasn't perfect, but it was a step in the right direction. And instead, the uh, federal circuit brushed it aside as irrelevant. We don't care what the patent office is saying. We're the court. So we're stuck in a situation where the patent office has tried to make some sense out of this, tried to apply some objectivity to a certain extent to these pronouncements, but these were recently tossed out by the, the federal circuit. So where does an applicant stand today? Where, what do we do as a, when we represent our clients or if you're a, um, a young startup, what are the guiding principles that you should be bearing in mind? Are there any? Well, there, there aren't enough. Uh, 
because you would have to be clairvoyant. You would have to be able to predict what two out of three federal circuit judges are going to do 10 years after your patent issues, which of course no one can do. And it's not only 101 law that has migrated and vacillated in an unstable, unpredictable way, but so have the federal circuit cases on section 112 requiring enabling disclosure and definite claims and uh, so forth. So uh, you would have to be able to predict the future, which uh, of course nobody can do. I think patent practitioners of all sorts, patent prosecutors who represent applicants or litigators or uh, advisors, counseling business leaders are all in a pickle because uh, there's no predictability. There's no clarity. There are no definitions. Uh, So uh, you you have to make guesses and they're often going to turn out to be wrong and they'll be expensive wrong. Uh, so the problem is that when in doubt, don't act. That's the, the, the normal cautious approach that most people follow. If I'm not sure it's going to work and it might well blow up in my face, I think I just won't do it at all. So the uh, things that uh, might have been uh, patented, uh, man, many uh, applications are now being abandoned after initial rejections under 101 because the applicants conclude the odds are so bad that they could prevail if they uh, go on through more years and more millions of dollars, perhaps, of, of expense in the patent office and in the courts. Uh, so we're, we're, we're impeding uh, the system that's supposed to be uh, promoting uh, invention and investment and progress. And it's all uh, unnecessary. We can have a perfectly balanced regime. Nobody wants an imbalanced regime. Nobody, certainly not the capitalist group, is in favor, as we've been accused of doing, of wanting to be able to patent dance moves or marriage proposals. Of course not. That's ridiculous. They don't even fall in the four categories authorized by 101. And nobody thinks that kind of a uh, innovation should be uh, patentable. But it, it, it's an example of the polemics and the propagandistic tactics of the opposition group. It's all about PR narratives and lobbying. Uh, it's not uh, really an intellectually uh, sound debate. And it could be, it should be. Uh, and maybe it yet will be. The people uh, in the opposition group are very talented lawyers. I know most of them personally, and I like them and respect them. Uh, but they are doing the bidding of their overlords uh, and the overlords for, uh, I think, selfish reasons don't want any change. So they're fighting it like crazy. And we'll see how it all plays out in the coming months and years. There's one question from someone in the audience who, who says that they once heard you say that during your time on the Hill, Congress members worked on substantive issues 85% of the time and fundraising 15% of the time. Has that changed? It's inverted. Uh, Now, the vast majority of the time of congressmen and even senators who have a longer term in office at six years compared to representatives having to run again every two years, uh, they all spend most of their time trying to raise money and placate uh, uh, funding sources. Uh, uh, and they spend less time legislating, and it's uh, it's a shame. Uh, and certain groups in both parties, but particularly I'm embarrassed to say on the R side, I say embarrassed because I was once a staff aide to a Republican senator uh, named Arlen Specter, now deceased, a very liberal Republican member. The, the, the R side particularly started punishing members who cooperated with Democrats. So instead of bipartisan work being supported by the leadership in the party, people were being punished for working cooperatively with somebody across the aisle. Complete insanity. Judge Michelle, this has been a fascinating 
conversation. Thank you very, very much for your time, though I'm sure we could continue speaking for hours on end. Unfortunately, this must come to an end. Um, Before we go, did you have one or two final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think that uh, everyone interested in IP law, particularly patent law, needs to become active because the reality is now it's all politics. And if practitioners and business leaders and investors and venture capitalists and so forth don't become active, the system will degrade further. So we all have a big obligation to get in the game and help to make the law fair, balanced, rational, efficient, fast, inexpensive, and so forth. And if we don't all get involved, uh, it's hard to see how things can improve. So I put out a plea for everybody to to get involved in having IP policy uh, be sensible and modernized. Thank you very, very much again for your time uh, today. This has been wonderful. Um, I think uh, we had a great number of listeners today. They've all hopefully heard your call. On behalf of FICPI, thank you for sharing your insights. Uh, We wish you success in your efforts to bring some clarity to the Section 101. And uh, we will see you next week for our webinar on trade secrets. Thank you very much. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.